I think brilliant stuff is getting done. I mean, look at the Me Too movement and the New York Times. I think inside climate news as well. And I just pray that the money will be there because it's incredibly expensive and takes a ton of travel, a ton of being able to have the freedom to chase down dead ends, having the time for a reporter to have paid time with benefits to file Freedom of Information Act requests for something that might not pan out because for every huge investigation, there are probably two or three on the cutting room floor. So that business model needs to be there. Tina Kelly describes herself as a cheerful optimist with a morbid streak. She is the author of A Bloom and a Rye, Precise and the Gospel of Galore, and co-authored Almost Home, Helping Kids Move from Homelessness to Hope. And she reported for the New York Times for 10 years, sharing a staff Pulitzer Prize for her 9-11 coverage. In this episode, Tina discusses growing up in small-town America in an abundant household, the influence of her poetic father, developing a love of poetry, reading and writing that set her on a path to Yale and beyond as a journalist, poet and author, via a detour through the world of NGOs and think tanks. Tina quotes Thomas Jefferson, If I had to choose between a well-functioning government and a well-functioning press, I'd choose the latter. Tina uses this to frame her perspective on the decimation of local news media, print journalism and the impact of losing a generation of people asking hard questions of public officials, or, as she says, leaving the pigs at the trough with no one watching. Tina discusses quality investigative journalism in the world of fake news and why she votes for optimism and the importance of hyper-local journalistic models. We discuss the resurgence and importance of local communities, her mixed views on Facebook, and we also covered the innovation of clear health costs, the startup that she's working with, and how it's disrupting the inequities of pricing in the US health system. We also discuss her approach for finding inspiration in everyday life, her journaling process, and the purpose and role of poetry in today's society. Finally, Tina discusses her vision for a world-changing educational model for the 21st century and answers all of her quickfire questions. I hope you enjoy the artistic advice, poetic perspectives and journalistic principles of Tina Kelly. Tina, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thanks for having me. First of all, we have to give a shout out to the wonderful, delightful Caroline Chubb Calderon who recommended that we interview you next. But that was a few months back, but mm-hmm. we're finally sitting down together. Yes. Which is great. Thanks, Caroline. So, Tina, we always like to start exploring our guests' lives um, before they were doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. In your case, being a journalist, a writer, a mm-hmm. poet, a prolific poet. Mm-hmm. We like to start with understanding more about our guests' childhood and their influences First of all, let's start with where you grew up. I believe it was New Jersey. Yes, Marstown, New Jersey. What's the name of the town? Marstown. Marstown. And then I went to high school in Mendham, which was the next town to the west. Right. Okay. And what about um, that life growing up in New Jersey? What was the impact of your parents' uh, parental support, their guidance, and the direction on the journey you've taken? Oh, it was huge. I was adopted at birth, and they had been trying for 10 years to have a child. So by the time I came around, they were very, very ready to be parents and they were excellent and loving and supportive. I really, I always said I hit the lottery when it came to adoptive families. Well, we've had, uh, you're probably the third or fourth guest on quite recently that have been um, adopted. Mm -hmm. This week's guest, James Jim Clark, Mm -hmm. was adopted after four days from San Francisco and came to New York. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting. So you were, were you a single child Mm -hmm. growing up in that environment? I was. So what about your parents? What 
what did they what did they do for professions? Um, my dad was an auditor in a bank, and he was very adamant that he pay off the mortgage before I even arrive on the scene. He was very good financially and frugal, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She worked part-time in retail at the local um, department store. So paying off the mortgage. <laughs> I know. Can <laughs> in you these days, I could, you could have been could have been waiting a long time <laughs> right. for Tina to come along. Right. Okay, so in terms of that influence, the the home life and the lifestyle, um, presumably it was quite a secure yes. and abundant lifestyle. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, my dad had a heart condition. When I was a year old, he had a very serious heart attack. So that was sort of hanging over us. But I think it gave me a sense of sort of grabbing every day for what it's what it's worth. And I knew that life and health were kind of tenuous. And I think that shaped me quite a bit. When did you find out you were adopted? I think I was three. Oh, so really young. Yeah, very oh, young. Like, my father found out when he was 45. Oh, that's not as easy. <laughs> that was that's, not good. That's very hard. Yeah, to find out you were adopted and also, and he found out because he didn't have a passport. (gasps) (laughs) So yeah, uh, hit him pretty hard. Yeah. Um, So that security that you're in, how did it affect your sense of identity and your self-belief? I think, I think that I always felt as a young child that with all the resources I was given in terms of a loving, secure home, I mean, it was middle class, it wasn't fancy, but I always felt that if I didn't do something big with that chunk of resources, it would be a bit of a shame. When were these thoughts coming to you? <laughs> I was little. I was like eight. It's like, I should probably be the president because they're, I just, I did feel very special. Wow. That's what an amazing sense of self at that age. Uh, yeah. To be that conscious of yeah. you're the, and have a world for you like that. <laughs> it was probably obnoxious. My high school sweetheart used to make fun of me because I had a, a journal when I was in fifth grade that was labeled child of the universe or something like that. And I wanted to be a writer since I was about eight. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when did you discover, you said around age eight, you wanted to be a writer. When did you have a sense of your writing ability? In second grade, we watched a slideshow about Walt Kelly, who developed the Pogo cartoon, which I never followed, but it was a little show about this guy who made up creatures and did that for a living. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And I wrote a short story called The Tree with the Moss Facing to the South. And my second grade teacher, Mrs. Eldridge, was um, very pleased with it and made a fuss about it. And I wrote a poem about my goldfish that got in the school newspaper in second grade. And I was kind of off. I think Perhaps because I was so eager to please, perhaps if she had loved some artwork, I might have gone off in that direction because she was a very encouraging, warm and loving second grade teacher. You obviously had a talent with words. Yeah, I guess we were all readers. My dad had a very poetic way of having insights. He was very good with the metaphor. And um, I stolen from him on occasion in some of my poems. <laughs> so what, what was um, play like for you? As a single a single child mm-hmm. um, in a small town? Mm-hmm. I had good friends next door and across the yard. And I was good at just being by myself. I read a lot. And I went to the pool in the summer. I, I was, I think I was always an extrovert. Uh, I liked not sharing the spotlight with siblings, but it also made it difficult later on when I was raising siblings because I didn't 
know up close how barbaric they can be to each (laughs) other. So I was very shocked by that. And I think I felt more comfortable on the basic level around adults than around other children, which was good and bad. Mm -hmm. Bad in what way? Oh, you know, like in the playground, in the rough and tumble part of the playground, I would not feel quite at home. Uh Mm, But you always had your pen. Yeah. And and probably a few few good phrases to throw around. (laughs) What about other early influences in your life that are memorable? We went to church, my mother and I, not my dad. I had perfect attendance in Sunday school, which is another thing that people tease me about. But I think... Something I can't ever uh, stand by. (laughs) It wasn't... It was pretty good, but never quite perfect. It wasn't up to me. It was my mom's doing, but I think I was raised in the Episcopal Church, which is Church of England, and... It's a very poetic liturgy, and it gave me a love of language and a love of music. Were there any memories or defining moments of your childhood you look back to that you think, that you keep, you remember, and Mm -hmm. that you can recount? My mom took us, us, me, to a volunteer situation that she would go and visit a woman who was in an iron lung at the local rehab center. And it must have been through an organization of hospital visitors. But this woman, who must have been in her 30s, was able to draw with her teeth. She balanced a paintbrush with her teeth and could draw. She drew a picture of a cat that I had in my room. And mom went to keep her company just because it was... What was wrong with her? She had polio, I think. I mean, that must have. Forget about the the affliction that polio was Mm -hmm. such a dreadful disease. Yes. And um, and I think that gave me a sense early on, plus we did Meals on Wheels, that you were supposed to give back to your community. My dad would go door to door collecting for the Heart Association, and I went along with him on that. So they were definitely um, civic-minded. Mm-hmm. I did mention it sounded earlier that you lived in a, in a an environment of abundance, but we always like to ask our guests, did they grow up with abundance or scarcity? Um, definitely abundance, abundance, I think. And how did that how did that affect your view of the world going forward? Besides, obviously, you said being having a, a, a social conscience and knowing the importance of understanding the importance of giving back. I think I grew up with a lot of white privilege and socioeconomic privilege that gave me blind spots that I didn't notice as I was going forward. You know, you think, well, everyone can afford music lessons and. Um, Everyone can afford to go to a a public school that's excellent, which is what I had in both towns. So there was there was definitely that. There was definitely it was an interesting division in race in Morristown versus Mendham. Morristown felt very integrated. Our schools were integrated when I was in kindergarten, and they had a very successful model of how to get the elementary schools divided up uh, naturally. And then when I moved to Mendham, there was one black kid and it was a little bit unusual to be Jewish and it was a little bit unusual to be Italian, you know. So it was very different and not great. How far away? It was the next town to the west. That's crazy. Yeah. So that there's a a completely different local um, government Mm -hmm. strategy. Mm -hmm. Who decides that? Uh, It's patterns of who lives where. It's real estate costs. It's where people can get mortgages. Wow, that must have been quite a shock. So, what? okay, well, let's get to school. What was school like for the young Tina? I loved it. 
as a, a, a <laughs> prolific reader and yeah. with a way of with words. Yeah, I I did well. I loved my friends. I had a good bunch of friends that I've kept throughout the years. My son thinks it's ridiculous that I loved school as much as I did because he doesn't share that with me. But I had good teachers for the most part, and um, I had a lot of fun activities. Were there any teachers that played a mentoring role in mm-hmm. your the second grade teacher, my fifth grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Lovey, uh, Mrs. LaLoya in sixth grade. Two in high school, the band teacher was tremendous and probably the hardest working teacher I've ever run across, bringing all sorts of concerts to our obscure little town. He got two trumpet players into the all-national band and just made it a blast. I didn't know that band wasn't cool until I went to college. You're a musician as well as a yeah. poet. All yeah. right. I played saxophone in high school and college, and now I play cello badly, but it's fun. Wow. That, <laughs> so life at school, how did it play out with you focusing on where you, because you said you could have gone in different directions other than just being a journalist mm-hmm. or a writer. You mm-hmm. could have gone down the route of being artistic. So artistic in terms of painting, drawing, I think if I'd been encouraged in that direction, if I'd made a beautiful painting that my second grade teacher had made a fuss over, I might have gone in that direction. I don't have a particular aptitude in drawing or painting, but I was I was pretty well-rounded in high school. I, I played saxophone and I was I was a track runner and did band and a Must lot of one activities. of the cool kids. No, not at all. We oh. were we were kind of the cool among the nerds. Yeah. You know, a lot of my friends were in AP physics club and that sort of thing. So propeller heads. But we had a, a supportive group of friends and we had active and who were your, parties. Who were your music and musician heroes at the time? Oh, Billy Joel, The Beatles, Bruce Springsteen, Meatloaf was a big... Well, with... with <laughs> and yeah, but also with uh, sax player, it'd be... Uh, oh, what yeah. was the name? Clarence, Clarence Clemens. Yeah. yeah. Mm. We had a guest on late last year called Marcus G. Miller. Mm-hmm. who is a saxophonist and mm. a mathematician mm. and a Rastafarian. Amazing, wow. amazing character. <laughs> and just his stories of uh, starting to play sax in bands age 14, coming into the city from New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, he talked a lot about his uh, sax heroes. So, yeah. yeah. Clarence was fantastic. Mm. So when you were at school, how, where did those ambitions start to emerge and to take you down the journalist track rather than down the musical path? I think I wanted to be a famous book reviewer so that by the time I wrote my first novel, I would be a famous novelist. And it didn't go that way. I, I, Even though I'm writing a book review right now, I'm not a book reviewer. It's quite a grand plan. Yeah. It's a bit like your father saying pay off the mortgage before right. any child came along. Right. <laughs> but I ended up doing journalism in, in high school at the school newspaper and also at the town paper. I did features for them, the Observer Tribune, and um, wrote about the track team, even though I was on it. But I realized that I loved learning for a living. I loved being paid to go out and talk to people and ask questions. And that's been the case ever since. I think journalism is the most amazing job possible. Well, just one before we get to the uh, journalism. (laughs) What uh, event and track? Oh, I did the 440-yard longest sprint, shortest distance, yeah, yeah. and mile relay. Ah, cool. I was an 800, 1500 runner. <laughs> so, yeah, I know, the, I know the pain of the 
400, I could never quite get below 50 seconds. So that was my, oh. yeah. No one else wanted to do it. So there was room that there. That was it, yeah. 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 All right. So you decided at school from this, you developed this love of journalism. Mm-hmm. And you then went to Yale mm-hmm. to study English. Mm-hmm. At that point, you've gone, right, this is it. I am... That's my path towards a career as a journalist, or as you said, to be a book, a successful writer. What I mean, I think journalist, quite- and both. I mean, right now I'm a journalist and poet and author, and I kind of wear those three hats always, and kind of always have. And so, when you went, to, you were at Yale. Presumably, you were writing in local sort of uh, local paper there, mm-hmm. developing your skills, building a name for yourself. Mm-hmm. How did then you sort of move from there beyond into full-time reporter and journalist? I took a little bit of a detour and worked in the foundation world as my first job out of college for Metropolitan Life Foundation, a corporate foundation. And I was figuring out figuring out ways to give away their money in the most effective way. That led to a job at a think tank, which was one of our grantees that was trying to fix up the New York City public schools. So I would write reports that were investigative in nature on how to fix the school custodian system, how to fix the teacher testing system. I worked for a coalition of 26 organizations that were child-focused, and we would issue these consensus reports, which was kind of a miracle that it ever happened with 26 people agreeing and disagreeing and editing my reports. But I worked for someone who was incredibly good at bringing together coalitions. And we would lobby downtown at City Hall and we would lobby Albany. And it was a really, really fun job. And that led eventually to jobs in journalism. Okay. So at that point, were you still spending your spare time writing poetry Mm -hmm. and developing? Yep. And playing sax? Um, occasionally, uh-huh. but mostly poetry. Mm. So that must have been a time when local journalism was still very healthy. Yeah. And that's been decimated. Oh, I know. I mean, what's your view on, on the impact that that's had on us as a, as a society? I think it's terrible. I think from covering local meetings, my first job in journalism was at the Philadelphia Inquirer in the Cherry Hill Bureau, where each of us was assigned a town to cover, and we were paid by the article. We went to town meetings, planning board, school board, town council, and developed it as our beat. And it was a perfect job for a cub reporter. You just learned so much in those assignments. And now I think about, you know, I took the buyout from the New York Times, skipping ahead, in 2009, And in the three years between 2006 and 2009, the country lost 25% of their print journalism people, reporters. And I just kept thinking of all the town councils in all the towns across America where someone wasn't watching and asking the hard questions and filing the Freedom of Information Act requests to get to the bottom of what was going on. And for the most part, public officials at the small town level are earnest and honest, but not all of them are. And for those who aren't, the pigs are at the trough with no one watching. And I think nationally, the lack of respect given from leadership, quote unquote, leadership positions to journalists is criminal. 
that I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said, given the choice between a well-functioning government and a well-functioning press, I'd choose the latter. And if you don't have a well-respected and functioning press, you're in trouble as a country. And that's, I think, where we're at today. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll probably come back to that. But that's. <laughs> but it's. I remember growing up and just the impact. You know, every morning, I wouldn't necessarily agree with the newspapers that my mother mm-hmm. used to order, but there would always be the local newspaper landing mm-hmm. on the doormat mm-hmm. with the national newspaper. And yeah. it was always at the, the breakfast table. Mm-hmm. And there's something about it, it that it binds communities together. It builds understanding and knowledge and, and community, I yeah. think, both by, like, say, shining a light mm-hmm. on the bad things, but mm-hmm. also celebrating the good. Yeah and building awareness of what's actually happening and encouraging people to come together around civic events. So I think it's, it is sad that we've, we've, we're at the point we're in. However, and again, I'm jumping ahead, <laughs> maybe in a situation that we're facing at the moment in around the world where you're dealing with um, local health crisis, right. that's where local news becomes even more important. Yeah. So there might be a resurgence in a slightly different format, yeah. hopefully. Well, I also think that the kind of journalism that I like to do is um, often around problem solving. And if you find things that actually work to make society better and can get those out with the microphone of the press, then there's a sense of optimism about, wow, these awful things that are happening aren't necessarily forever. And I'm trying to focus my work in that in that direction. Yeah, so we're talking about what's happened to the industry so since you've been a journalist, the, obviously there was a technological disruption mm-hmm. that happened mm-hmm. around, as you said, 2006, 2009. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I remember I was working at McCann in London in 2006 mm-hmm. and we had the editor of GQ come in to mm-hmm. do a talk mm-hmm. and we're having drinks afterwards. And mm-hmm. I said, what do you think the impact is going to be on your your industry of bloggers? And he went, bloggers? Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a passing fad, mm-hmm, a passing mm-hmm, phase. Mm-hmm. You're thinking, oh my goodness, the people that had their heads in the sand right, at that time. Right. But anyway, yeah, so technological disruption and then the damaging impact on social media and then obviously the recent political undermining of, of the values of truth that you've, you've mentioned. Where do you think that's leaving quality investigative journalism in the country now? And because I, I suspect that there's still people out there like you coming through university that have a thirst mm-hmm. and for, for truth, for mm-hmm. knowledge, to get to the core of a story. Mm-hmm. That hasn't gone away. It's just the mechanisms and the, the mechanisms and the structures around which journalism is encouraged and fostered right. has been distributed and damaged. What's your view on the, the, the state and how do you balance optimism and pessimism around its future? Well, I have to. And I know there's a lot in there. I know. I have to vote for optimism because that's how you get up in the morning. I've worked at the New York Times and beyond with some incredibly talented young journalism students and graduates who are going to make it happen. I basically pray for the health of the New York Times and other major news organizations. I also would love to figure out the hyperlocal model. I think. The nonprofit model for news is promising as well. Somebody's going to figure it out because people need to know what's going on. And people will pay for it, as shown by some of the big publications that have paywalls. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I have ideas and... 
When you say hyperlocal, what do you mean by hyperlocal? Well, when I was at the Times, my last assignment was to create a hyperlocal news blog for Maplewood, Milburn, and South Orange, New Jersey, which are, I live in Maplewood, and those are the two adjoining towns. There was one also in Fort Greene in Brooklyn and later one in the East Village. And we were based on models from the West Seattle blog, from BaristaNet in Montclair. There are some very sustainable local news gathering organizations that sell ads, that do membership, that do Patreon, that that make it happen, that keep the lights on one way or another. And dipping into that was so fascinating because there's a hunger for it. In my town now, we used to have three sort of nationally based hyperlocal blogs. There's now one locally run one that keeps the lights on somehow called Village Green NJ. Dot com, go there and say hello. And it's it's necessary for the health of the republic. And I think there is an appetite for it in certain communities. Right now, I work um, on occasion for the Montclair Local, which is what evolved privately funded after the Montclair Times um, disbanded. So. There is in in many communities, at least suburbs of big cities, there there is that appetite for local news and there is a willingness to pay for it. So somehow down the road, I'm hoping that they can figure out the perfect pay model so that more and more of them can bubble up. I seem to remember around 2010 when I first came here, uh, there was a platform that was all about local, building local connections and community. DNA info, maybe? Was it that? No, it wasn't. Uh, Gothamist? No, it wasn't. It was an, a national platform. To Patch? Oh, Patch, yeah. that was it. Patch, yeah. They're not thriving right now. Uh, but I know that there are other models. My, my best friend works at Inside Climate News, which is supported by grant funding. And they are doing incredibly important work in climate coverage, they were they won a Pulitzer, they were a finalist for another Pulitzer, and they are a thriving sub-organization dealing with a subtopic that is doing incredibly useful work, world-changing work. So there, there are others like that that, you know, I have a friend who wrote a book called Killing Journalism. His name is Joe Strupp. Shout out to Joe Strupp. And his conclusion on how journalism is is in dire straits is that the nonprofit model will save us all. And, you know, fingers crossed, but it's got to happen one way or the other because people need to know what's going on, especially in a climate when people cry fake news all the time. And, and the disparaging of journalists has really become rampant. We're just trying really hard and go through like at least at the New York Times, we went through three levels of fact-checking. The idea that we would make stuff up is just unfathomable. <laughs> it's like, have you talked to a journalist lately? Do you know how we live in fear of having a correction in the paper? That's our livelihood. And if we're not telling the truth, we're out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it is bizarre that we've got to a stage where there is a the, the propaganda that has been propagated or that's mm-hmm, right, by, mm-hmm. by certain politicians has undermined people's belief in the institution. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, it's you not can... just them, can, though. I mean, there have been... There's other, other factors. There's been other factors. I mean, we had people... You get rogue journalists, mm-hmm. and that's really bad for the brand. Well, looking at... I think <laughs> this is where we have to look at the impact of blogs and YouTube channels of certain questionable 
yeah. sort of characters and individuals mm-hmm. that that peddle that type of mm-hmm. sensationalist news. And it's happening now around the virus as well. But yeah. I had a an interesting experience living in Williamsburg. There was a local community farm built for seven years uh, on the plot where they're building the two, two trees. The Domino Park a development on the Domino Sugar Factory is, and it was called North Brooklyn Farm. And that for me was a an amazing example of a space and a community being built around shared local values. Mm. Now, it was around a farm mm-hmm. and vegetables, mm-hmm. but it was bigger than that because they had their, their website and it became a gathering place and space for people mm. that shared a belief in the community and the power of the community to come together and support each other mm. and be healthier and happier. Mm-hmm. And I think that, for me, was a, an example of where it, it, it made me think and reflect that there is a need for some form of mechanism that is, that is a magnet that draws people together around their, their local shared values. Mm-hmm. In real life. Exactly. And it has to be physical. And as we're, I mean, who knows where it's going to play out over the next six to 12 months. But I suspect we are seeing some form of exponential change in the way that we're going to be living our lives. So we will have to become more sustainable, more local, mm-hmm. more connected, mm-hmm. more reliant on e- in each other. Yeah. Yeah. The way that the technology has, instead of, I remember, well, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here. We had a, a creative director, an agency I worked at called Gray, who had this line when we were pitching, a, it was, I think it was for Cisco. He said, the, the further technology takes us, the closer it brings us. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think that was wrong. I think the further technology takes us, it has a risk of separating us as well. It can do both. But I think that's what we've seen over the last, 10 years, Mm -hmm. this separation because of globalism. And I think we're going to, you know, the same way that we talk about the heart and the systolic and diastolic beat of the blood going in and out. Mm -hmm. I think we're, I suspect we're going to see a resurgence of interest in journalism, in local news, in the power of local community. I hope so. I hope so. And, And I go both ways on it. I think everything's a pendulum, but I also have gotten great value out of an organization that has a really stinky business model, which is Facebook. Our town started a swap I, I like that term, stinky business model. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'll start using that. Right. But our town started a, a swap group, like people selling, you know, like a garage sale, but it turned into a community forum, which has lots of pluses and minuses. But that's where a lot of us go for like the first draft of the news and and the gossip first and then you go to the local village green and see what's actually curated by a journalist but i also know that technology brings us closer together especially if any of us are quarantined we're going to be spending a lot of time on those sites and as of yesterday i already got news from friends about there's a sign up genius for families to buy food for food insecure families in our town especially if the schools close, because a lot of the kids rely on the schools for meals. Mm -hmm. So already somebody good has figured out a way to get food to people who might not get it otherwise in a time of pandemics. And I thought, wow, that's That's pretty awesome. Yeah, Yeah, I suppose you're right. In the stinky business model, (laughs) business in question, is to some degree embracing a slightly different approach by encouraging groups, as we see from the Mm -hmm. ads on TV understanding that that uh, a more of a a group based focus for their their business yeah. is maybe the, the positive direction they need to take and truth is good too they should work on that yeah and 
and fact and fact checking and technology that yeah and uh, that spots deep, deep fake videos. <sighs> but I want to um, just talking in terms of the the broader picture that that's at the local level and the national level. Mm-hmm. What's your assessment of where we are with investigative investigative journalism and the quality? I think brilliant stuff is getting done. I mean, look at the Me Too movement and the New York Times. I think Inside Climate News as well. And I just pray that the money will be there because it's incredibly expensive and takes a ton of travel, a ton of being able to have the freedom to chase down dead ends, having the time for a reporter to have paid time with benefits to file Freedom of Information Act requests for something that might not pan out because for every huge investigation, there are probably two or three on the cutting room floor. So that business model needs to be there. Again, that's a benefit, I'm, surely, of something like Bezos coming in and supporting the and buying the Washington Post. Right. But on the other side, you have hedge funds coming in and just gutting newspapers all across the country, which is hugely worrisome when profits go awry like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on a project that I think could be a wonderful way to get journalism to be more relevant to people and that could help with the monetization, if I can talk about that a little. I am, I work, um, a friend of mine who left the New York Times under the buyouts of 2009 um, went on to start an organization called clearhealthcosts.org. It's a journalism company that works with big media partners, large and small, actually, to crowdsource what healthcare costs. Ah, yeah, I've seen that. Yes. In here. Yeah, it's brilliant. So it's brilliant. And people can, uh, like right now we're partnering with Gothamist and WNYC, Brian Lehrer, and CBS News. And there are uh, places on those websites where you can search for what people are paying for a particular blood test in the area, the local area. There's a place where you can put in what you paid. You can submit your explanation of benefits to clearhealthcost.com and talk about what you spent for each different CPT codes, each different x-ray or um, blood test or, you know, sonogram so that people can understand what costs are being charged around various cities. And we found that, say, in New York, where there are lots of um, walk-in clinics, that when people started comparing prices and posting prices, that people would go to the one that had the reasonable price. And gradually those prices have have normalized and towards the reasonable price because people don't go to the $500 visit. They go to the $100 visit because it's more affordable and there's not a clear gauge that's of quality that's gauged to price. There's that that link has not really been formed. So I think that once a local or regular medium-sized news organization or even a hyper-local news organization has that kind of information available to their readers, the readers will find that hugely useful. So if I want to, if I live in San Francisco or if I live in Los Angeles, I can go and look and see what those costs might be in my town and save hundreds of dollars and talk about what I paid and what irked me about what I paid and why should I have to go through these unjust billing situations. It's a clear case where 
sunshine is the best disinfectant yeah. because we've covered stories in New York about a guy who had back surgery in an emergency basis and was left with like, I think it was $650,000 in medical bills and just was ruined financially because of some surprise billing. The governor's office called and said, you know, how do we fix this? And oftentimes when when a case like that is publicized, someone steps in and says, we need to fix this. Or the insurance company will say, oh, I guess we really shouldn't have charged that. Let's fix that. There's something so broken in the in the cost healthcare cost system as it stands that this kind of light can um, really bring about change. When did this start? Oh, I think about eight years ago. She won a Shark Tank-like competition to start the company and created the software and has had a number of media partners. I think one of the gold standard partnerships was with um, New Orleans, the Times-Picayune website, NOLA.com, and their local TV news channel. So it's worth checking out. And it's um, I think it's a model for how a news gathering organization can bring great value to the local consumer. So I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's uh, clear. Clearhealthcosts.com. .com. So just for, I want to get into your poetry, but what's the, it, so you would see the the roadmap of this being that local news organizations embrace this platform yes. and integrate it with local news. So people have got a utility there right? that's addressing probably one of the most broken issues in American yeah. society, which is health costs. And it's the and largest just... it's the largest issue for the upcoming election. Yeah. And it's the issue that the average American has four hundred dollars in savings, which is a blood test basically. If you're not getting your if you're getting your health bills in a crazy fashion, as most of us are. So I feel that the more local news agencies adopt this form of reporting, if we can go national, it would be huge. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll definitely sort of um, put that in the show notes and share it with whoever we come across. Thanks. I was going to ask you one, well, one quick random question, just <laughs> because we go and talk about favorite <laughs> books and stuff. The random question about your favorite book or movie on journalism. I love broadcast news. Yeah. Because I am movie. the Holly Hunter character who goes off and has the five minute cry and checks her watch <laughs> and comes back to the newsroom when she's done. That that was totally me. <laughs> right. Okay. I'll put that one in the show notes as well. Great movie. Um, so you said that in 2009 you left the New York Times to write Almost Home, Helping Kids, Helping Kids Move from Homelessness to Hope, a book about kids helped by Covenant. Covenant House. Covenant House. Yes. Which is largest, the nation's largest charity helping homeless youth. Right. Uh, clearly a very purposeful step. That you mm-hmm. took mm-hmm. and quite a bold move to take in 2009 at the probably at the heart of the recession. What led you to do it? Well, the Times was having their second round of buyouts in the year. They were always a very stressful time, those buyouts. And everyone in the newsroom was saying, What's your plan B? What's your plan B? Was this pre Mark Thompson? Yes. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And so I called around. I loved working at the New York Times, but I also knew that a giant constriction in the market was coming. So I called around to um, people I knew in the nonprofit world who I respected and said, do you have a need of a writer? Do you know anyone who has a need of a writer? So I was networking and I called Kevin Ryan, who I had written about while covering child welfare issues for the Times. He was 
the child advocate for the state of New Jersey, and later the head of health and human services. And he was the guy with the white hat, as far as I was concerned, who came in and tried to reform a very broken foster care system in New Jersey and was doing it in the most ethical and wise way possible. And he had gone on to lead Covenant House. I had volunteered for Covenant House in 89 and a few years after because it had been a grantee of the Metropolitan Life Foundation. And I had always been interested in homelessness. I had volunteered in college at their homeless shelter after I'd written about it in the local news magazine. So it all ties together. And I realized, I think, when I was doing the book tour for Almost Home, that the reason I was interested in homelessness was very deep-seated in my survivor guilt in some ways for finding such a wonderful home as an adopted infant. I could have landed anywhere. I could have landed in the situations that I was writing about in Almost Home. A lot of those kids were not raised by their biological parents. And I didn't land in an abusive trailer home in Alaska. I landed in a lovely Cape Cod in Marstown, New Jersey. So I called Kevin and I said, do you know anyone who needs a writer? And he said, we do. I recently took over. I want to write about the transformative stories of the kids that we help at Covenant House. I'm not a writer. You are. Maybe we can make this happen. And I got off the phone and I said to my husband, I just imagined that phone call. That was my absolute dream job. That's actually a possibility. And he made it happen. So I realized that my plan B was better than my plan A. I'd always wanted to write a book. I'd always wanted to do long-form journalism. And I knew that this was my chance. So I went over to work on the staff of Covenant House, which is very unusual to be able to have a salary and benefits while you're putting... writing a book, yeah. Oh, my Lord. That is very rare. But I think it was very wise on Kevin's part. I think the book... I hope the book was worth it for them. I know we used it as a fundraiser and a fundraiser and got the word out about six truly amazing young people who who were able to bring themselves out of homelessness with the love and help of Covenant House. So pivoting away from core journalism, but still writing, mm-hmm. and then focusing on developing your career more in poetry. <laughs> I've heard that you keep an ongoing catalogue of interesting <laughs> phrases and yep. aphorisms or words that you hear mm-hmm. and you encounter in mm-hmm. your journalism every day. Mm-hmm. Can you explain more about that and how you use it to apply it, <laughs> to generate and to stimulate and inspire the poetry that you write? It's a file in my computer that I... Just much of it, is it Evernote or just notes or what it's is it? It's a word file. A word file, that's it. Called, it's called Work Marge 0508, which is random. I think it crashed in May of 08. I made a new file. It was Marge is from Marginalia, which I used to write in the sides of my notebooks in high school and college. So it was always the margin notes. And Work was the version of it that I had at my work computer, which is probably not all that ideal, but that's what it's called. (laughs) And it's where I put anything that I might want to put in a poem someday. So misheard song lyrics, words that I love, misheard conversations, accurately heard conversations, topics for poems, new vocabulary. I suspect you never walk around the city with headphones on. Um, I don't. I don't. (laughs) I just have never believed in sitting down to write a poem with a blank piece of paper, I would just choke and fail on that. I always have this file, which for me is sort of like my palette, my 
materials, my raw materials. So especially when I had little kids, if I had an hour to do poetry, I couldn't wait for inspiration. I had to have it sort of ready right there to dip into in this one file. So how do you, how do you zero, zero in on a particular phrase to start that poem? And how do you know where that poem's taking you? I don't know where it's taking me. <laughs> I, it's usually, it usually clumps together near the top of the file, which is the most recent stuff. So I'll, I'll put an asterisk near something that I think is a topic. And I also have a little poetry do file, which is like, okay, next time I feel like putting my poet hat on, here's some steps of what needs happening. I so there. Can you give an example? Oh, sure. Um, revise a poem that I've recently workshopped. Do a poem on a particular topic. Just search my big file for asterisks for what's what's bubbling up to the surface. And then usually the more recent things I've collected will resonate with that topic. Or maybe it's just one image. Like, thanks to blogs, one time I saw a blog called um, the Discard Studies blog, which is very fascinating about garbage. I have a dear friend who's a garbologist at NYU, and she turned me on to the Discard Studies blog, and there was a post about all the white, lawn chairs, those crappy white plastic lawn chairs that were found at the bottom of the ocean because they fall off ships, they fall off pleasure craft, they'd sink to the bottom. And when the submersible went down to the very bottom of the sea, they found a whole lot of them. And I thought, oh my, that is a topic. And I did a lot of research. I read the links from that blog post. I got lots of new vocabulary about the deep undersea world and I got a poem out of it. Cold? Uh, wheeled walker at the bottom of the ocean. Oh, wow. So my and mother was sort of in the process of passing away at the time. And I was thinking a lot of stuff that you use when you're disabled. So she had a wheeled walker. And I thought there's probably a couple of them down there too. And it just went from there. Do you think, is there anything that binds your poetry together? Is it a social commentary or is, can it be anything? Is it that eclectic? It's curiosity, I think. Yeah. I, I, I used to get a lot of images from my general assignment reporting because they would send you anywhere to do a story on anything. And so I was always running across new worlds and talking to people I wouldn't usually talk to. So I remember doing a story on a rare plant in South Jersey for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And the guy I was interviewing who had this plant on his property, he said, yeah, you know, give me a heads up when the paper runs because we're down here where God lost his shoes and we don't usually get the newspaper. Mm. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, I'm stealing that. <sighs> That's a wonderful phrase. It, yeah, pe- where does that come from? I don't know. People are so interesting. Uh-huh. People are so interesting. And and I always felt that journalism was the perfect job to feed a poet's mind. What role do you think poetry plays and that the power poetry has in today's society? I think it's actually better than it used to be. I think there are, in the same way that journalism has sort of declined in readership, I think poetry may have risen in readership. I think poetry may have risen in readership because there's so many blogs. There's so many online magazines. There's so many ways to share that... Even though a lot of them are tiny, I think there's enough of them that there's this bubbling curiosity for and hunger for more poems, especially 
in the time of Trump. I mean, there's lots of resistance poetry. There's lots of poetry that people turn to for comfort. You've described yourself as a cheerful, optimistic person um, with a morbid streak. <laughs> so, I mean, I know you've 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 uh, reflected on Trump before and the state, but how is 2020 with everything that's happening panning out for you at the moment? It's great in some ways because I have a book coming out in October that I'm excited about called Rise Wildly from Cavan Carey Press. Rise. Rise Wildly. Wildly, okay. Um, given that optimistic theme. And I'm working on a project that I totally believe in, in journalism, trying to get a book out on an education model that I think is world-changing. And so in my world, I'm trying to focus on things that actually work. I'm getting all serenity prayer on 2020. I will do what I can to make a difference and try to know the difference between what I can change and what I can't change. National politics is outside of my control. I think it's outside of a lot of people's control. It may be in the Russians' control. Who knows? I will work for candidates that I believe in, but I also, for my own sanity and for, I think, what's good for the world on some tiny level is I will work on what I think can be solved. And the topic of my book right now is a six-year high school model that is called P-TECH, Pathways in Technology Early College High School. It's a collaboration among a public high school, a community college, and a corporation or a group of corporations that gather together and figure out the best way to get kids who don't have to test in, who don't have to have any particular talent as eighth graders, to go into a technology-based program where they get a free associate's degree with their free high school diploma if they work hard and if they're and they are supported in working hard with tutors and mentors and paid internships. They get a curriculum that's designed so that they can be well prepared for their associate's degree and for um, a job in the corporation, an entry-level job in the corporation. It sounds like a modern-day apprenticeship. Yes, it's career and technical education. It doesn't cost the local school district much of anything. It gives the community college well-prepared students and students who are well ready to graduate on time, which is something that the community colleges desperately need. So many kids come in needing remediation, which is expensive and keeps them from graduating. And it helps the corporations get well-qualified, well-prepared kids who have the soft skills to do well in their business. And oftentimes they're a very diverse group of students. 80% of them actually go on at this point to a four-year degree, but they do so without any college debt from their first two years. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's so brilliant. You just answered one of our questions, which was if you were given the keys to the White House or the mayor's oh, yeah. office, what would you do? So you yeah. just answered that. That's great. Yeah. We yeah. need to learn more about that. Yes. And we'll maybe have to come back and do another interview and deep dive into that because oh, that is so important. I love it. It was, it was originally invented by IBM. It was originally invented by the guy who I actually worked for in my second job out of college at the think tank. So I've kept in touch with him. He told me what he was up to, and I said, oh, my gosh, that's a book. So we're in the process of finding an agent and publisher for that book, and I am bullheadedly optimistic that it should get out there into the world. I'm sure it will. And, yeah, well, let's definitely follow up on that one. <laughs> um, I'm conscious of time because I know you have to get away, so we're going to have to skip some questions. 
But I do I want to ask you about serendipity and <laughs> what serendipitous event or encounters that have <laughs> defined or changed the direction of your career? I have one for you. I was supposed to go out cross-country skiing one Saturday afternoon when I lived in Seattle with a person I'd been set up on a blind date with who had been nice on the first date and wanted to go cross-country skiing. I get an email the night before that he would rather stay home and read. And I felt that was suboptimal. So I went (laughs) instead to the brunch that my friend was hosting. I had a backup plan. Plan B. Uh, Plan B turned out to be once again better than plan A because I met my husband there. (laughs) So I came into this brunch rather bitter about being stood up and started to talk to this guy who ended up being funny and kind and considerate and hot, and I married him. Perfect. So, Well, great story. That was yeah. serendipitous. And the other guy ended up being the editor of a poetry magazine that I would send my poems to on occasion and always get rejected by. I never told him about how, thanks to him, I am happily married. I didn't think it would be good for him, but it was a lovely story. Poetic justice, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> um, we always ask about curious and creativity, but you are a naturally curious person, as you've said, and <laughs> it fuels what you do. And clearly what you do is, a, your, is your creative output. So I don't think we need to dive into too much of that. <laughs> so let's get the quick fire questions out of the way. And if we do, I can come back and ask you a couple of sure. others. What principles do you stand by? Do unto others. It's a good one. Pretty basic. Be a woman of your word. Do what you say you're going to do. It's amazing how that's not that common. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I feel that a lot of people have best intentions but don't actually follow through. And I, I do really try to follow through when I say I'm going to do something. But those two things kind of get you through a lot. And being polite. <laughs> Universal. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision in the end? Um, the job changes. I loved working at the New York Times. I, I wrote a poem called On Leaving the Newsroom, which was posted in the New York Times blog. It's a, There's a link for that somewhere about my love of journalism and how hard it was to leave daily journalism. And I remember my mother saying to me, like, oh, you know, you're leaving a corporate job to go work for a nonprofit, like, are you concerned about, like, what's your game plan after the book? What's your, is this a wise move? And I said, well, you know, the journalism model right now is not looking too rosy and the poor will always be with us and hopefully I can work for other nonprofits and, or figure it out from there. And, you know, it's a struggle not being in the newsroom anymore. I miss the camaraderie. I'm an extrovert trapped in an introvert's life. I work at home with my dog and cat on the sofa and that's challenging at times, but it's been the good choice. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas outside your sofa? Outside my sofa, I get lots of new ideas on my sofa. The inter- I really swear by Google. I love the days that I'm doing a deep dive into a topic like the bottom of the sea, there's there's nothing like the internet for research. And I'm so glad I live in a time of the internet rather than having to dig through in the library. I wouldn't find the stuff I find mm-hmm. that way. I go to the woods. I, as often as I can, take a couple hours and just walk in our nearby giant park. And half the time I get some really good ideas and half the time I just take a forest bath, as they call it, and bring my dogs and, and it's 
kind of a, I, I follow the artist's way by Julia Cameron's wonderful book on how to treat yourself to creativity and op- opportunities for creativity and taking an, a, an artist's walk is, is something I swear by. Um, and I also love giant words and love researching their etymology and just, I get a shiver of delight whenever I find something new like that. So that's my next poetry book with any luck. Okay. I look forward to that one. <laughs> What's one problem that's worth solving? Racism? Yeah. 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 Certainly in this country. And I've been sort of working on that on the local level, trying to organize. We've done an organizational communal year of learning in Maplewood to try to come together and talk once a month about topics that were touched on in the 1619 project by the New York Times. So that's led me into some conversations and learning and I'm doing some articles for the Montclair Local on integration and restorative justice. So it, it's it's been an area I've been exploring and understanding my own blind spots and white privilege and learning a lot that way. Okay. Well, if there's any any links to any of that stuff, you send maybe send it to us. Yes. We'll put it in the show notes because yeah. I think it's an important subject. Yeah. If you could return to one night, one day in history, where, when, and to see who... No, this isn't about changing history, by the way. It's just okay. uh, a curiosity. Hmm. Probably the Last Supper. Yeah, just that's a good I, one. I I read a lot of theology, and I'm reading um, John Shelby Spong's book on the Fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, right now, and it's so fascinating. He's such a brilliant thinker, and he's talking so much about how what we know of from the Bible is more myth than history, but still equally important and world-changing. And I think there's probably some agreement that there was a Last Supper, and I would love to be on the fly on the wall in in that situation as long as I could speak the language. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that is a good one. What's one question that no one asks you that you wish they would? What am I knitting right now? (laughs) <laughs> and the answer is? <laughs> um, probably six or seven different projects, but knitting is a is a huge practice in my life. I love it. I'm always doing it. I do it for charity. I do it for a friend of mine who's doing a design business, so I'm her sweatshop. And it's a coven. I make friends through it. And it's because it's repetitive and calming, I think it's a almost a meditative practice. It's there's there's this shirt that says I knit so I don't kill people. I think it's very calming, and I teach it when I can. So it's um, sounds like there's another Facebook group there. Oh, there is. Yeah, there, there is. Definitely yeah. is. It's okay. actually there's Ravelry.com, which is the Facebook for knitters, and it's a wonderful. What do you call it? Ravelry. R a v e l r y. dot com, and it is Facebook for knitters where you can find any project and find what different yarns look like when they're in worn by human beings. Okay. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> I actually, I remember when I was a, a student in Edinburgh, um, I had a fascination with learning to knit. You should do it. I did. No, I did. Good. I learned and yeah. then I stopped. I even knitted uh, uh, myself a, a very over length sweater. Yes, that's how they come that out. I was very happy with because mm-hmm. I was a sort of a, 
That's ambitious. New romantic punk. And yes. I had this ridiculously long sweater because yes. I couldn't buy one. So I thought, I'm going to knit it myself. Yes. So I taught myself to knit Oof. and I knitted it. That's and impressive. I had it for years. I loved that sweater. Most people just do scarves. You can pick My it up. My mother didn't. Oh. You can pick it up at any time. You have there muscle you memory now. And I, yeah. And as we, and you know, as we have to start to develop new craft skills, maybe knitting will uh, have a resurgence. It's better. not a craft. It's a post-apocalyptic survival skill. Wow, I like that. <laughs> that's yeah. another T-shirt I saw. Well, that's another one. And also shoemaking. Ooh. Yeah, there's a shoemaking place around the corner for me in, in Williamsburg. I keep meaning to go in there and do a class because I think it's going to be pretty important. Yeah, that's good. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Oh, my kids. Nah, I suppose, yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. Mom, I Constantly. Thought, oh, Mom, I thought you were a woman of your word. They make me better people. They drive me to have a glass of wine at dinner, but they make me better people. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. You have to be your best self as many hours of the day as you can because they're watching and taking notes and they're going to be a lot like you when you grow up if you do it right. That's good. Impossible question. What would your advice be to someone who's about to graduate, that go to study, that might have an idea and a grand ambition and that's been told, ah, forget it, that's impossible? I think everybody has time for a side gig. And there's... 24 hours in a day, you only need to sleep for eight. You can work for the other eight and do your, do what you have to do to feed yourself and survive and have a cushion financially. And for a lot of people, that's more than eight hours a day. But with your weekends and with your time off from work, work on your side gig until you can make it a real gig. That's great advice. Um, we finish these questions. What's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, Patsy Klein, I go out walking after midnight. It's in my range. Great. We haven't had one of that, that <laughs> mentioned before. A recent Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV series, Disney, season. Oh. Even everyone's in the streaming business now. I don't know which streaming service it's on because my husband does all that, but I loved Bill Gates' mind or Bill Gates' oh, brain. That three-part documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we watched also, I thought Chernobyl was fascinating. We're watching McMillions now because my husband created a card game called, called Fraud the Game, which is fascinating and funny, and everyone should check it out at Fraud the Game. I'll get you the link. Yeah. But he's fascinated with fraud. So we are watching McMillions. I've seen that is, one. Oh, it's yeah. about the, they had a little card, a little game where you would scratch off pieces and if you got a million dollars on your piece you would win a million dollars but somebody gamed it and gave these little pieces to all their friends and there's the story of how this is uncovered and it's very well done oh. and it's okay. it's hysterical there's a one investigator that you just want to take home with you because he's so he's so off the rails and off the reservation all right well i definitely put that one in our <laughs> list uh what book apart from yours <laughs> um, which we've obviously put in the show notes, so your series of books that you've written. Um, would you like us to offer listeners that submit the best comment in the comment section? Oh, um, A Bloom and a Rye, which is my... Oh, aside from mine? Oh, no, that's yours. Oh, okay. for mine. Yours plus, plus and one sorry. that isn't. Let Us Now Praise Famous Men by James Agee. Why? It's my go-to book. It's the book that I want to write when I grow up. Although... James A G A G E E. He did a full submersion with families who were sharecroppers in Alabama during the Depression. And it's kind of my gold standard of journalism. Although when I do go back to read it again for inspiration, 
he needed an uh, needed a little bit of an edit, but he's such a poet, and he writes with such heart about people that mainstream America doesn't understand. So that's what I've always kind of aimed for as the gold standard. And the name of the book was? Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. And the final question, who should we interview next? <sighs> Tori O'Connell, who's a novelist in Maplewood, who's hysterical. She wrote a book called Nookie Town about husband swapping, but it's safe for work. At least you can interview her in a way that's safe for work. <laughs> okay, that sounds fun. And she is a musician and songwriter and does some performing as Tori Erstwhile and the Monties. Cool. She's just hugely talented. Okay. Well, um, I just want to wrap up by thanking you very much for your time. Sure. Tina. It's a um, delight to be here. And acknowledge you for your, what comes across as an incredible social conscience and set of values that seem to be your guiding star for everything you've done, for your quest for the truth in all your expressions of your talent and work through the telling of your your stories, the creation of your poetry. I think truth probably is a red thread that runs through all of it. So I just acknowledge you for that and Thank keep you. up that work because we need more people like you in our society. Thank you. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.